glad we have the opportunity to to meet each other virtually and to learn together in these uh, very trying, difficult times for many people around the world. And uh, we have the opportunity to study some Torah. So Pesach is soon upon us, and um, the ritual of Pesach, the Seder, is probably the core ritual of the Jewish people. And the way we fulfill the mitzvah of the night, which the Haggadah itself calls Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, to tell the story of the Exodus, the Haggadah is the vehicle which we use through which we are fulfilling this commandment. We are telling the story, Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. And the Haggadah itself, in the very beginning of the Haggadah, makes reference to what it calls the commandment of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. It says, no matter how wise we are, there's a commandment to tell the story of the Exodus. And the more we, the more we tell, marba is the, the more, that is praiseworthy. And then a story is told in the Haggadah of uh, various rabbis who got together, great Tanaim got together, and they were so engrossed in the story that they didn't realize that it was already sunrise and the time to read the Shema till their pupils told them. So Kohamar Bilasapir doesn't mean only in terms of quantity of time, but it means quality to be fully engrossed. And this commandment to tell the story, that's the commandment on the night of Passover. That's the mitzvah of Leil Pesach, Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. The Haggadah knows of a different mitzvah. And actually the Haggadah, classical Haggadah cites a Mishnah at the end of the first chapter of Brachot, a dispute between Ben Zoma and the Chachamim as to whether there is a mitzvah to remember the Exodus twice a day or just once a day. That means every day of the year. That's nothing to do with Passover per se, but there's a mitzvah called Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim, and in the classical prayer service, in the last uh, part of the Shema, actually, it says, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. And then the blessing that follows talks about the Exodus. So the dispute in the mission is whether you do that twice a day, morning and evening, or only once a day. And according to the opinion that we do it twice a day, the opinion of Ben Zoma, it actually really highlights the question if there's a commandment every single night of the year to remember the Exodus, what is so special about Passover night? Is a mitzvah every night to remember the Exodus? And presumably what the Haggadah is after is to make a distinction between memory, you remember something, and with saper. With saper means to tell a story. So there's a difference between the telling of the story, which is much more uh, engrossing requires much more effort uh, than simply to remember. And typically when we tell a story, we tell it to another person. So memory doesn't require another, but a story requires another person. So the mitzvah optimally at the Seder is to speak to another person to discuss or to study actually the Exodus. That's one night in the year. Two nights if you're outside the land of Israel. But in the land of Israel, one night, 
Torah has one night, and uh, that's the special night. And this special night is not just about telling the story, but the Haggadah makes the claim, additional claim, later on, towards the end of the first half of the Seder, we call Magid, that Lord HaKadosh Baruch Hu Vadar, in every generation, as if he or she had personally left Egypt, a personal exodus. Not only did God save our ancestors, says the Haggadah, but we were delivered together with them, as it is written, God took us out from there. So the Haggadah speaks to the Jew who was never there, and says to the one who wasn't there that you should see yourself as if you were there. That's on the night of Passover. And that's part apparently of the way the Haggadah sees the idea of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim to tell the story. Now let me make, for today's uh, class, let me just make, I'll get to one main point I want to make. But prior to that, I just wanted to point out that the Haggadah is a very simple book in a certain way. When you begin to look at it, it's actually, it raises many, many questions. And one of the interesting questions that it raises is um, the Mishnah has chosen a text for us to study at the Seder. And it's not a text that would jump to mind. The text that is chosen, says the Mishnah, is the is, is that which is read by the one who brings the first fruits to the temple, called Mikrabi Kurim. And when you bring the first fruits to the temple, the Torah says in the book of Deuteronomy, Dvarim chapter 26, that the one who brings the first fruits to the temple makes a declaration. And the declaration begins with the verse Arami Ovedavi. Literally, my father was a wandering, uh, my ancestor was a wandering Aramean. And it talks about the suffering in, in, he went down to Egypt, grew there in Egypt with a family, and the Egyptians harmed us, and they persecuted us, and afflicted us, and we cried out to God, verse number three, and God took us out of Egypt, verse number four. And at the Seder, these four verses form the basis for what the Mishnah says, the Doresh, the Drashot, the interpretation that we give, the questions that we ask on these four verses. And it's a very strange choice for two reasons. First of all, because it's not a text from the book of Exodus. On the night of the Exodus, you would expect a text from Exodus. And secondly, the recitation upon bringing the first fruits to the temple makes much more sense for the holiday of Shavuot, which the Torah calls the festival of the first fruits. It hardly seems to make sense for Passover, which has nothing to do with the first fruits. So it's a very strange choice. Even stranger is that if you study the Drashot, which we're not going to do now, but if you study the way the Drashot work in the Haggadah, almost all of them cite a second verse to say something about the first verse. So you cite a verse from, from Dvarim, and half of the verses that are used to corroborate or to explain are from the book of Exodus. So it seems a rather roundabout way to do things, to cite a 
verses in Deuteronomy that seem to have no link at all to Passover, and then to explicate them on the basis of verses from the book of Exodus. Why not just start with the book of Exodus? Those are very important questions. And I think they suggest many different possible answers. But I did want to say one thing about Arami Ovedovi. Arami Ovedovi, and perhaps the reason it was chosen, is that Arami Ovedovi is a recitation that the one who brings the first fruits to the temple makes. It's a recitation. And actually, when you look and see what it says, the person comes with the basket of fruit, gives it to the priest, stands in the holy place, and the priest, put, priest puts it by the altar, and then the person makes the recitation and then bows down. And the person who brings the first fruits makes a recitation before God, but also makes a recitation before this priest. Actually, the person who is speaking is speaking both to God on one hand and to the person on the other, and not just speaking. It's about bringing the fruit. It's about placing it down. It's about bowing down. And these are elements of what we would call storytelling. The person tells a story, and when you tell the story, it's not just the words. It's how you say the words, it's the tone, it's where you stand. Very often there are audio or visual aids. And the Seder actually <coughs> is very much like that. The Seder is, we are speaking to different people at the Seder. We talk about four different kinds of children, different groups of people that come together. We have the Seder plate, which is really the audio <coughs> visual aid. There's the matzah, there's the Seder plate. In the old days, there was a table. In the time of the mission, there was a table they would bring in and take away. So in, in storytelling is not just about the words. It's about the total experience. And perhaps what our tradition was about is that the night of Passover is not just about remembering, but talking to each other and telling a story. What the Haggadah called Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. So perhaps that's one of the explanations, I think, why this particular text might have been chosen. And, what I, and the person who brings the first fruits to the temple, and this is a very important point, there are four verses. This is the core text of the Seder. Some people don't realize that, but it's the core text of the Seder. And the person, <coughs> the recitation, the first, first verse is, Arami Ovedovi, my ancestor was a wandering Aramean who uh, went down to Egypt, who dwelt there few in number and became a great nation. That's verse number one. Verse number two of the four verses is, Vayoreu otanu hamitzrin vayanunu. The Egyptians harmed us, the Egyptians afflicted us, and they placed upon us difficult work, slavery. They enslaved us. And we notice the difference between verse number one and verse number two. Verse number one talks about my ancestor. My ancestor was this, but, but in the second verse, the Egyptians harmed us. And suddenly this person who may be living in the land for hundreds of years, thousand years after, or thousands of years after the Exodus, says, 
the Egyptians harmed us. And that's a very important point. It's what the Haggadah says, you see yourself is there. You're actually putting yourself in that place. It's like the great actors. The great actor doesn't play a role. Marlon Brando didn't play the Godfather. Marlon Brando is the Godfather. And that's a very important point about storytelling. The idea of the Seder is to put yourself there. And there are many different ways to put yourself there. But it's to see yourself as part of that story. It may have happened many years ago, but that's my story. They harmed us. We, we cried out to the God. God took us out of Egypt. So the Arami or Vedavi section has precisely this point. The first verse is about my ancestor. They, they went down to, to Egypt. They grew in Egypt. But when it comes to the suffering, it starts with the suffering. We suffered. We're afflicted. We cried out. We were delivered. That's part and parcel of what we call the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim to tell the story. That's our story. That's the collective story of the Jewish people. That's the beginning of the Jewish people. But what's interesting is that there are different ways to personalize the journey. And I wanted to speak uh, today about one way in which the journey is personalized in that tradition. And tomorrow I'll speak about a different way in which the journey is personalized. I think they're both very important. And much of what I say is actually found in the Haggadah that I wrote together with Rachel first many years ago called Go Forth and Learn. Some of you may have seen that Haggadah. Some of it is there. Hope to add a few points that are not there. But what I wanted to say is the following. The way the Seder is set up, it's called the Seder. The Seder means an order. And there are essentially two things we do with the Seder. First of all, the Seder basically is a, uh, is a meal. In the Torah, it's a sacrificial meal. The Paschal sacrifice was brought in the daytime. It was eaten at night together with the matzah and with the bitter herbs. Amatzot umrorim yochuhu. That's the main focus in the Torah the sacrificial meal, the sacrifice that is brought and consumed at night prior to the exodus from Egypt. The rabbinic understanding is that there's an additional obligation on the night of Passover, and that obligation is to tell the story. And they derive it from the verses of the Torah. Whether that's the most plausible reading of the Torah is a very interesting question. Some of the verses cited in the Haggadah certainly, in plain meaning, don't refer to Passover at all. Be that as it may, others would appear to be talking about Passover. And the rabbinic understanding is there are essentially two commandments for the Seder. One is the meal, and the other is the telling. The telling has two parts, the telling of the story, or more properly the way we do it, the studying of the story, and there's also an obligation to be to give thanks, thanksgiving. And that we call the main prayer of thanksgiving that we say at the Seder is called Hallel. And I'll get to Hallel in a couple of minutes. And the Seder, which means the order, is actually a very interesting order. Because if we took a vote here, what, what do you do first? Do you, do you eat first? and then tell the story? 
or maybe you should tell the story first and then eat, and probably we could see both sides of it. If you eat first, you'll be too tired afterwards, you never tell the story. If you tell the story first, you'll be too impatient. Let's get to the food. In any event, we can have a vote about it or whatever, but the tradition has taken a different point of view, and that is that we start by eating. Because the first thing we do with the Seder is we make Kiddush. Kiddush starts the meal. That cup of wine begins the meal. Like many, um, many meals that are special, when you go to a special meal very often, you don't just sit down and eat, your, eat, eat the food, but there are drinks beforehand, there's butler service, the smorgasbord or whatever, and that's a marker of an important meal. So the festival meals, including the Shabbat, you start with drinks, you start with the wine. That's the beginning of the meal. But then shortly after we make Kiddush, we don't continue the meal. We do wash our hands ceremonially and dip some uh, vegetables, but then we say we're not gonna eat until first we tell the story. And we tell the story. And at the very end of what we call Magid, we do a very strange thing. We read the first two Psalms of the, of the, of the Hawel service. Hawel, the classical Hawel, consists of six Psalms. Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. At the Seder, and this is already found in the Mishnah, we read Psalm 113 and 114, make a blessing, drink a cup of wine, and then we start with the meal. Psalm 114 is when Israel left the land of Egypt. So we include the recitation of the Thanksgiving uh, section, the Hallel section, as part of the telling. And only after that, do we eat the meal? So this is the, and then we stop. We don't even finish the whole halal. We don't read six, the six Psalms. We stop there after Psalm number two, and then we eat. And after the meal in the Afrikoman, we then complete the halal. Almost as if the meal becomes part of the halal. So instead of either eating first and telling the story, I would say what we eat and what we say. First we say, then we eat. Uh, I'm sorry, first we eat with Kiddush, then we say, then we eat, and then we say. And this interweaving of these two, of what we say, what we study, of the praises and the thanks, and the sacrificial meal, the interweaving of those two is called the Seder. Now, as far as the Hallel is concerned, the six Psalms, these six Psalms are known in the tradition as Hallel HaMitzri, the Egyptian Hawel. Now, why is it called the Egyptian Hawel? So Rashi, in his commentary on the Talmud, says, because Psalm number two, which is Psalm 114, explicitly mentions Mitzrayim. It mentions the exodus from Egypt. And therefore, Rashi says, we call the six Psalms, they're known as Hawel HaMitzri, as opposed, for example, to Psalm 135, that is also traditionally recited at the Seder. That's called Hawel HaGodol, Hodu Hashem Kitov Kiri Olam Chasto, the Great Hawel. And the other one, the six Psalms are called Hawel HaMitzri. So I'm gonna suggest that it's called Hawel HaMitzri for an additional reason. But what's interesting is that the way we say Hawel at the Seder, we break it into two pieces. The first piece, which ends 
the section we call Magid, and it's the Haggadah, as, as it were, the Magid part, the telling, is Psalm 114, B'tzeit Yisrael mi Mitzrayim. But then we resume Hallel with four more Psalms after the meal, ending with Psalm 118. What I wanted to look at, together with you, now, if anybody uh, has a comment, just unmute yourself, and it's good for, I can't see most of the faces here, but unmute yourself and speak up so we can all hear, and that would be uh, good, useful, that we can uh, hear each other. If someone has a question or an idea, please speak up. Psalm 118. If you have a Haggadah with you, you can find this towards the end of the Seder. Psalm 118. And... Uh, it begins with, it begins actually with Hodu Hashem Kitov Kiwi Oram Chasko, with those verses, Yomano Yisrael. But the bulk of the psalm starts with the verse, Min HaMeitzar Karatiya Anani Bamerchaviya. Min HaMeitzar Karatiya. This is the last psalm of the Hallel, the conclusion of the Hallel, the concluding psalm. Min HaMeitzar. A meitzah means a narrow place, from the straits, S-T-R-A-I-T-S, from the straits, I call to you, I call to God. Anani b'merchav. Anani b'merchav could mean God answered me, or anani, God answered me. It's a, it's a request. Either way, what does b'merchav mean? A rechov. What's a, what's a rechov in, 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 in Hebrew? A rechov is a big street. Rachav means broad, Broadway. A rechov is Broadway, a broad place where people gather in the street. So I, I, I see myself in a narrow space, says the psalmist. Oh God, answer me by merchav, with, with, with enlargement. That's how this starts, the last psalm. And of course, when you hear the word Metzar, what you hear is the word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, of course, Egypt, but Mitzrayim can be read as a narrow place. And in fact, Mitzrayim as a narrow space is not just a kind of drush that's made up afterwards, but Mitzrayim as a narrow space is found in the Torah itself, in the plain reading of the Torah. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and God said to Moses, Mitzrayim. I will go down, says God, to save them from Mitzrayim and to bring them up to that, la to that land. I'm going to bring them up to a different place. El Eretz Tova Urechava, to a good and broad land. So there you see already in the Torah, the contrast between Mitzrayim, the narrow space, and Eretz Tova Urechava. And in Birkat HaMazon, in the prayer we say after we eat a meal, No Hashem we are grateful. You gave us a, a good land, a broad land. And you took us out of Mitzrayim from the narrow space. So here in the psalm, the person, the psalmist is crying out, I called you from my, a narrow space, my narrow space. Everybody has their own narrow spaces. God give me enlargement. That's how it starts. And now it's very interesting to see what the psalmist, where the psalmist takes us on this journey, on the cry for enlargement. 
enlargement can be understood in many ways. Enlargement can be seen as give me choice in my life. I feel I'm in a place I have no choices. Give me choice. Enlargement can be give me, let me see the bigger picture, a different perspective. I'm seeing things a certain way. Allow me to have a different perspective on life, to see things from another place, which would allow, which would open doors for me. There are all kinds of possibilities. That's how it starts. And then the psalmist speaks about God's assistance. God will assist me. I have faith. God will assist me. And you read a few lines down after the statement about, I, I, I believe in, I have, I have trust and I have faith. The psalmist says the following. The psalmist says, they swarm around me. Sabuni. I feel myself surrounded. Surrounded from all sides, like bees. When bees attack you, they're completely surrounded from all sides. Sabuni gam slavuni, sabuni kidsvarim. They push me down, says the psalmist. I'm falling down. The sense of being surrounded and having no place to go. And actually, when you think about it, the sense of being surrounded and having no place to go, we encounter such a story in the Torah. We encounter exactly the story in the Torah. People find themselves in a place and they have no place to go. They can't go forward because in front of them is the sea. And they can't go back because behind them, there's Pharaoh with his chariots and his army. And there they are, stuck in a place. How did they ever get to that place in the first place? Why do they find themselves standing in front of the sea with Pharaoh's army pursuing them? Why would they choose to go on that route? So the Torah said they didn't actually choose that route. God chose it for them. In the words of the Torah, God caused them to go there. So the psalmist plays off that, off the Vayasev. This person sees herself, himself, as being in such a place, surrounded, no place to go. I'm about to fall. And then it says, Hashem Azarani, but God assisted me in that place, in that space, Hashem Azarani. And the next verse in Psalm 118 is, God, God is my strength and my might, and God has become my rescue, my savior. In that verse, is word for word taken out of Shiratayam, out of the Song of the Sea. It's exactly that, exactly that, that verse. But the interesting thing is, it's the same story. Israel was caught at the sea, no place to go, and God assisted them and brought them to draw through the sea, dry land, and they sang the Song of the Sea, and the verses Aziv is when you open up the Torah and read that song, what you realize is that that's only the first half of the verse. The first half of the verse is, 
God is my strength, perhaps my soul, my strength. But there's a, the verse continued. This is my God. means there's a house. This is my God, and I will find God a space, a house. the God of my ancestors, whom I will exalt. So the psalmist has chosen the first half of the verse, but has not chosen the second half of the verse. Now, why has the psalmist chosen the first half of the verse, but omitted the second half of the verse? And I believe the answer to that is that the first half of the verse can be recited when one is alone. I can say alone that God is my strength and my salvation. But the second half of the verse, that's different. Is, um, that is a house. That's a, a public space. So in the public space, I can only say, I can always, I can always say in the public space, additional praise. There are two kinds of praises. One is the one you can do privately, but there's another kind of praise where people join together and they talk to each other. And in fact, Hallel is a good example of that because Hallel is a prayer that we say, one speaking to the other. In fact, Psalm 118, before we said, begins with, and then there's a response. It's responsive. Then the the leader says, Hodu Hashem Kitov, and the community responds, Hodu Hashem Kitov. So there are two kinds of praise. There's one praise you, say, you, you can say privately. There's another kind of praise that requires the house, the public space. So here, the person who was delivered privately says, Ozi Vizimratya. But the second half of the verse, Ze'elivi Anveyu, Elohei Aviva Romemenu, Luromeim, to exalt. For that, you need a house, you need a space. Now we continue in the Psalm, Psalm 118, and it continues, I hear the sound of rejoicing and crying out in the tents of the righteous. So this psalmist hears or imagines hearing from the tents of the righteous, that's a house. There's some place where righteous people come together, people who were vindicated, tzaddikim, and he hears they're crying out. And what are they saying when they cry out? They're saying, Yemin Hashem the right hand of God does valiantly. Yemin Hashem Romeima, the right hand uh, is, is raised. Yemin Hashem the right hand does valiantly. So it's ABA, Yemin Hashem Osechayim. In the middle is Romema. And again, Yemin Hashem Osechayim. It's a chiastic structure of ABA. And when you have ABA, the key is B. The A's are the envelope. And so we hear is in, this, in the tense of the righteous, Yemin Hashem Romema. Now Romema, of course, was the second half of the verse in the Song of the Sea. Zei Levi Anveyu. Elohei Aviva Roma Menu. This is my God, and I will raise God up. 
exalt God. But he hears a place, the place of the righteous, the all-late tzaddikim, where they are saying this. They're talking about God's right hand. By the way, in the entire Bible, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one other place in the Bible where you have the triple use of the expression, God's right hand. Only one. You might want to take a wild guess where that is. It happens to be in the Song of the Sea. Yimincha Hashem nedari bakoach, yimincha Hashem tiratz oyev, natito yimincha tivlaemo aretz. So the psalmist, Psalm 118, is playing off the Song of the Sea in many ways, including this description of God's power as God's right hand, of Yimin Hashem. So the person who said privately, Oziva Zimrat Ya, here is in some public space, they are saying, Yimin Hashem Romema. But you need the public space for that. So what does this person do? What the person does is, this person will set out to find that place, the tents of the righteous. Where are the tents of the righteous? It's a very good question. Sometimes in the places you least expect them, we find the tents of the righteous. And now the psalmist explains why he has to go there. The next verse, a very important verse. I will not die, rather I will live. And I will relate the deeds of God. God has chastised me harshly. But I'm alive. So here, the psalmist explains why why the search for that for the house? Why the search for the tents? And the reason is because I want to tell the story. You know, we to tell the story requires the other. It's very interesting, by the way. There is a custom, an old custom. It's more than a thousand years old. That when we start the second part of the Seder after the meal, we open up the door. Then there's an additional idea that the prophet Elijah waits by the door. But the prophet Elijah is attested to much, much later. The earlier custom does not mention Elio at all, but it does mention opening the door. And when you have a custom, it's very hard to know what's behind the custom. Very difficult to know. It's a lot of guesswork. And I, I'll put in my two cents over here, and I'll say the following. When we started the Seder, after Kiddush, we invited everybody to come. We invite people to come into the house. After Kiddush. What are we inviting them for? We invite them after Kiddush. So we're not inviting them so much for the meal. Yes, they'll eat the Paschal meal, that's true. But they're being invited before we start telling the story. For, before Sipur, before we tell the story. We want to tell our story. We want to study with as many people as possible. And the opening of the door before we start the second half of the Seder, we're going to say Havel, and we're going to say the great Havel. And it's precisely this idea of Sipur, of telling the story. Here is not so much studying the story, but here is saying and telling others how I was saved, how I was redeemed. I want to invite people to hear my story. In the Olay Tzaddikim, they're telling each other their stories. 
They're telling how God has redeemed them in some way, gave them opportunities, insight, enlargement, or whatever it is. So that's the reason that this person feels compelled to seek out the Olet Tzadikim, wherever they may, may be. And it says in the next verse, Pitchuli Sharei Tzedek. Oh, open up the gates of Tzedek. The Olet Tzadikim, the door is called Olet Tzedek. Sharei Tzedek, the gates of righteousness. Odeyam, Ovovam Odeyam, I want to give thanksgiving there. Zashar Lashem, this is the gate which can lead me to God. Sadikim Yavobo, with the righteous enter. I want to be part of that group that tells the stories to each other and proclaims God's righteousness. And then it goes on describing what this person would do, Odechokianitani, etc. And it, this section ends with, that ends, but it continues, it continues into, Ana Hashem, Oshiana, O God, redeem me. Ana Hashem, Hatzlich, Ana, let God, Hatzlich, uh, Ana, allow me to succeed, prosper, which suggests to us, actually, I think, as an aside, that the person who's speaking there is not yet actually redeemed. The person is imagining redemption. It's very hard to know in the Psalms in general if someone has actually been redeemed or somebody imagines redemption. The person is imagining redemption. And the person is imagining seeking out the Olaid Sadiqim. <coughs> and the very next verse. Hashem. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one who has come to God's house. We bless you in God's name. Who is speaking? Who is speaking? The one who is speaking is the greeter. You know, some synagogues have greeters. You walk into a synagogue and somebody meets you. Before you walk in, shows it to your seat. How are you? Can I get you a prayer book? It's a wonderful idea, a greeter. This particular tent of the righteous has greeters. And the greeter says, Baruch haba, You have come to God's house. You have found what you are looking for. You found the space. You found the unveil. And in fact, the greeter says, not only that, the greeter says, El Hashem God shines upon us. Bind the festive offering with ropes to the, to the horns of the altar. We're about even to bring a sacrifice. Come and join us for our service. Come be part of the group. So this person who has been searching for the tents of the righteous has found it. Perhaps in the imagination has found it. And, and the need to find it is because the second half of that verse, which is I will exalt God, that's not possible if you are alone. It's only possible when you have somebody to tell your story to. So what is the response of the, of the seeker? The response of the seeker is You are my God and I will demonstrate, I will be grateful, Odeka, Odeya. And the verse concludes, Elohai, 
My God, I will exalt you, the Romain, which of course is the second half of the verse in the, uh, in the Song of the Sea. And what does the person say at the end? And that's how Hallow concludes. It concludes with this verse, which is actually a song. That's how Psalm 118 began. You know, it's very interesting, actually. First of all, what I find when I first thought of this a few years ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was, it struck me as very powerful that this prayer that many of us say many times during the year is actually a story. It's about the person who's seeking. And what the person is seeking is the ability to proclaim publicly gratitude and thanksgiving. And the truth is that this idea of seeking out the public space, public space to proclaim one's gratitude appears actually in Hallel earlier. In these set of six psalms, it appears earlier. It actually appears in Psalm 116, which is one of the most beautiful psalms that we have, which begins with the words, I love when God would hear my, 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 my prayers and my cries. And the psalmist describes in that psalm, in the first half of the psalm, Return my soul to, to rest, to peace, to God has dealt, dealt generously with me. God has delivered me from death. I will walk before God in the land of the living. And the psalm continues with a question, namely, How can I repay this? What do I do to repay the goodness? Sometimes we're so grateful somebody saved us, sometimes even from death. What are you going to do? How do you, how do you pay it back is a very good question. What do you do? That's the question the psalmist asks in 160, and the answer that is given in Psalm 116 is, I will bring a thanksgiving offering, proclaim God's name, I will fulfill the vow in the company of all the people. I'll make a public statement as to my gratitude. But where is the public place in Psalm 116? The public place is in God's courtyards in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the temple. So in Psalm 116, it's the same thinking, namely, how can I repay? I want to do it publicly. But there, actually, the public space is very clear. It's the temple. So I'll go to the temple and read my offering. In Psalm 118, there's no particular place. Psalm 118 is very personal. And there is no public place. There are tents of the righteous. They can be any which place. And the person is seeking out those, those tents and those holy places, holy spaces to, to tell one story to the other. And telling one story and to hear the other stories, and that's the best way to demonstrate gratitude. So the, the personal journey, Minameza, 
the person is moving out of this particular person's narrow spaces and feels that God has given, uh, given this person the opportunity to see the world differently, to be redeemed, and redemption takes many forms, and then to meet other people and to exchange the stories with Saper. So the idea of Sipur comes up in the Haggadah, both in terms of the study and also in terms of the Havel, of the expression of gratitude. And this is truly the idea that in every generation, one should see oneself as personally leaving Egypt. In this particular Psalm, the, the form that it takes is a personal journey. Yes. Nisa, I was just trying to get your attention for. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, so I might have missed it, but when you were talking about um, the minhag to open the door, and if Eliyahu comes later, are you saying that we're just trying to like open like the Shari Tzedek, the, the Ohalei Tzedekim, like what was the... What I was what saying, was yeah, thought? thank you. Thank you for the question. What I was saying that opening the door um, is an invitation for people to come in. We, we, we have a story to tell, and we want other people to hear it. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was traveling once to Israel, one of my many trips, and I was so I, I had my Bible with me, and I was reading it, and next to me was this couple, not Jewish, and they were really uh, 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 evangelicals, but very hardcore, you know, and they were very taken. I'm reading the Bible in Hebrew and English and everything. So I was talking with them, whatever, and... Um, they were actually moving to a different state because they had found some, some teacher they liked. They picked up to follow this teacher. It's very impressive. And the, the guy got up maybe to walk around and the woman was sitting next to me. And she says to me, I want to tell you my story. So I was, very, I was in the street and I was in God and God saved me. And that's, that's what this is about, I think, actually. We have a story to tell. We have an insight maybe that others would find useful in their lives how I was in trouble and how I found an answer and how I got a certain insight. So the opening of the door, which I think precedes the idea of identifying that for Eliyahu to come. Eliyahu is a different story. I'll mention, a, since you raised it, I'll mention a word about Eliyahu. But my idea was that in telling the story, it's what the psalmist said in Psalm 116, the more people that hear it, the better because I have a message to tell the world about my own personal redemption, my own deliverance, my own insight. Maybe you will find it useful. That's what this woman was saying to me. You're in a different place than I am. This will happen to me. Maybe there's something in my story that you can take with you. The idea of hearing, and it's something very powerful about the stories. Our, the, the Torah basically is a set of stories. 80% of it is stories. Um, and something about the story that's very personal and it speaks in a very deep way to, I think, all of us trying to understand the other person's story. So the opening of the door was initially, I think, that. My guess. Later, it becomes identified with Eliyahu. And Eliyahu is interesting because what Eliyahu represents is the aspiration for the future. You know, we have the fifth cup of wine at the Seder. So the four cup, we drink four cups of wine. And there's a fifth cup of wine. The fifth cup of wine is there. Each cup of wine is wine that we drink in conjunction with one of the commandments, one of the mitzvot of the Seder. First is Kiddush, cup of wine. Make a blessing, 
accompanied by wine. Then we tell the story, Sipur, make a blessing, Shergalanu, with a cup of wine. Then we eat the meal. We make blessings after the meal, Birkat Amazon, with the wine. And then we say Hallel. Now there are actually two Hallels we say. There's the Egyptian Hallel, Hallel HaMitzri, and there is the Hallel HaGadol. So the fifth cup of wine, the idea of having two cups of wine at the end, one is for one Hallel, and the other is for the other Hallel. And the truth of the matter is that in Jewish history, there was a long period in Jewish history where most satyrs had, had five cups of wine, not four. For whatever reason, that dropped out. And the fifth cup of wine became the cup of Elio, which they put on the table. And the cup of Elio became, what Elio represented is the, the, the future redemption. We, we, we left Egypt, which was a redemption, but we also, see the, the fact that we were redeemed once means it's possible to be redeemed. And maybe we'll be redeemed again and Elijah's cup is on the table. It's particularly interesting, I think, because Moses appears almost not at all in the Seder. Moshe's name is mentioned maybe one time and completely downplay the role of Moshe, certainly not explicitly mentioning Moshe at the Seder. Now we all know that Elio actually is a Moses figure. The character of Elio in the Bible is shaped all around Moshe. So even though Moshe is missing, maybe we sort of slip Moshe into the picture through the character of Elio. But be that as it may, it is, it, my point was that Elio was a later and separate tradition, but that the idea of opening the door was simply inviting people to hear our story. And the same way we're inviting people in the beginning to study with us. The more people that study together, the God is very much about having people with different perspectives, different kinds of children and um, rabbis studying with each other and parents and children. So there are different models for study, many models for study. Uh, but the idea of asking questions is very central to the Seder. Let me just uh, say two more things. Um, and then tomorrow I will discuss a different aspect of a personal journey. Um, trying to remember what the two things I wanted to say was. Let me see if I can recall. Yes, okay. Questions. So we start the, the Seder with, with, with four questions. Manishtana, we have four questions. There weren't always four questions, by the way. In the beginning, there were three questions. And they became four questions, five questions, back to four questions. But there are questions. So we start the Seder with questions. And traditionally, the youngest child asks the question. And then we respond to questions. And as we go through the Magid, then we have the idea of the four children. Kineged Arba Banim Dibra And each child is either asking a question, or if they don't know what to ask, we, we tell them anyway. Sometimes they challenge us. In perhaps in an impolite way, it has to be a response there as well. So again, we have question and answer. Then as we proceed through the Magid, there is a statement in the Haggadah, which is found in the Mishnah, that as part of Magid, you have to mention three things you must mention. If you don't say these three things, you didn't fulfill the mitzvah of telling the story. Pesach, Matzah, Umorah. 
you must mention the Paschal sacrifice, the matzah, and the bitter herbs. That's found in the Mishnah. In the Haggadah, it says the following, Pesach zosha anu Why do we eat the Pesach? And an answer is given. What is the matzah about? And we answer. What is the mara about? And we answer. In the Mishnah, it's not in question and answer form, but the Haggadah converts the language of the Mishnah into a question and a response. That's the third question and response we have in Magid. And I have suggested there's a fourth at the very end of the Magid section where we recite two Psalms from Hallel. We don't want to go into the meal without saying thank you. Part of telling the story is, is understanding our responsibilities for being redeemed. Freedom comes with responsibility. So the first thing is we are grateful and we acknowledge that that God has helped us. And the same thing may be true about other people helping us. We always want to acknowledge how we got where we got. If good things are happening, it's never alone. So we, we end with Psalm 114, when we left Egypt, at that moment, the psalmist sees everything happen at the moment we leave. In the biblical story, something's happened later. But the, the Haggadah is focused on that moment of leaving. You became God's holy people. God became our king. And then the psalmist turns and says, ki tanus. The, the, the psalm says that when we left Egypt, the whole world moved with us. Hayam the, the sea saw and fled. The Jordan turned backwards. The mountains skipped like rams. The mountains like the flock. And the psalmist turns to the, to the, to the, to the rivers and to the mountains. Why do you, why do you flee? Jordan, why do you turn back? Oh, mountains, why do you skip? question. So the very psalm that we say at the end of Magid is actually four questions. Four questions. Four questions. And there's an answer. We says, say the mountains and the rivers, we, 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 we skip, we dance, we flee before the God. What does Chuliaretz mean? So Chuliaretz, the plain reading of it, means the Cholel and Biblical Hebrew means the creator, the creator of the land. That's a possibility. Plain meaning is the creator, Cholel. That's how Jonathan Sachs has it. That's correct as far as it goes. But there's something much more. That Chuli has two other two other resonances with it. One is the word chil, which means fear. The word chil appears in the Song of the Sea, chil achaz yoshvei polashet. But the word chui has an additional resonance. At the end of the Song of the Sea, Miriam, we are told, vatikach miyam anviyah, Miriam, Aaron's sister, took the drums, vateitzena kol hanashim achareha betupim uvimecholot. And the women followed her with drums, tupim, uvimicholot. 
Chalot is some kind of musical instruments or dancing. Dance and song. Why do you flee and why do you skip? And the answer is before the God who evokes in us simultaneously two different feelings. One is a sense of awe and trembling, the joy that flees. At the very same time, the very presence of God is a source of great inspiration and joy. And that's Shirat Hayam. On one hand, it's a frightening witnessing of destruction, of God's might. At the same time, there is a deliverance and Miriam and the women are singing and dancing. And that's how we end the first part of the Seder. We end it with questions and answers. So in four different places, it's all about questions and answers. And the reason it's about questions and answers, presumably, is because what the Haggadah is about is trying to understand. Sometimes people, you'll hear people say, the question is more important than the answer. And that's utter nonsense. The question is not more important than the answer. But what is true is you'll never get the answer without the question. So in that sense, it's necessary, but not sufficient. It starts with the questions. So this is what the Haggadah is about, actually, in terms of the experience of Sipur, of joining with others, and also expressing gratitude. And we end with the Hallel, which takes us on a personal journey. Every person's in a different place. Every person has their own narrow spaces. And hopefully we can get some insight into how we can escape from those spaces and move to better places and share our stories of joy with others. I speak to you at a time when we are talking virtually in a distance and we're all in narrow spaces actually. And we recognize, I think, something very profound about ourselves and that we are, we are part of humanity. At its core, we're all human beings and we have different paths in life, but there's something that really unites us and it's very important, I think, to come back to that recognition about who we actually are. And I would say that, that it presents many challenges, especially around this time of year for the Jewish people. Passover is a holiday. People get together with families. Some people go away every Passover. There are probably some people who never had their own Pesach in their home. And suddenly they find themselves alone. Maybe they're elderly and try to figure out how to reach out to these people is not a simple matter, but we're thinking about that a lot. You know, for those people that can do something virtually or will do it, that's one thing. But for those who won't, they'll be very alone on Passover. And I think as a community, it's something to think about how we can ease that burden. In any event, the straits, the difficulties which beset us also afford us an opportunity, I think, to, to, to act heroically. It's always amazing how many people you see who are living, we take them for granted in many ways. People in the medical profession, the nurses, the firefighters in 9-11, in, uh, in and suddenly we able to understand a lot better the contributions that many people make in, in, in their own way and we all benefit from and don't often appreciate sufficiently. So I certainly hope that we can move out of the straits sooner rather than later, all of us uh, move to much better places. And I think it does provide us an opportunity to reflect upon who we are, where we stand, and what our possibilities might be. So hopefully 
tomorrow we'll continue with the personal journey of Passover. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much, Rabbi Silver. Does anyone have any questions before we, we sign off? You can unmute yourself, raise your hand. I just want to share one thing that I learned from uh, Rav Simcha Weinberg, and thank you, Rabbi Silver, uh, very much for everything. And it had to do with the splitting of the halal into two parts. Uh, there are two pieces to this. The first is that our entire meal is also halal. It's also a way of expressing our gratitude. And um, apropos to what you were just saying, this is sort of the first quarantine we ever had to have because we closed our doors and we had to stay inside because of some hidden mashchit, this hidden destroyer that we had. And when we open our doors, uh, I won't go into what we're reciting at that point now, but um, it's a sign of hope for the Geula and God willing, we'll, we'll all have occasion to open our doors uh, with that sense of hope for the Geula this year as well. Thank you, Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, one last comment. October. Yes. Yeah, it's me, son. Um, I very much appreciated the uh, the shiur. Um, I came across, and now I understand much better the idea of haseba. Uh, there are, I believe, Rishonim even who uh, consider the verse that you mentioned by haseba lekimasaam. There habayam suf is a biblical basis for Haseba. Yes. And the way you brought it out to me, uh, I now understand even when one, you know, is is uh, reclining and inclined to feel regal and all that, one must remember by Haseba Elohim. One has to direct the gratitude to Rabboni Shalom. And um, that's, that's a minor point, but maybe it's a major one that uh, that you brought out to me. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So we'll hopefully all are welcome tomorrow. Thank you. Welcome everybody again. So yesterday we talked about the journey as reflected in the, uh, I would say the second half of the uh, Seder. And the, the core claim was that the Hallel that we say at the Seder uh, draws from the Shira, the song of the Yashira Tayam, the song that we read and uh, was sung at the crossing of the sea. And that that song is sort of the parad paradigmatic song and that the Halo plays off that. And that that's one of the reasons that this Halo is referred to as Halil Hamitsri, the, uh, the Egyptian Halil. The first part of the Halil ends with and we say that before we eat the meal at the Seder. And then the second piece of the Hallel ends with Psalm 118, and that the Psalmist takes the experience of Mitzrayim and personalizes it and makes it about from the narrow spaces that each of us has in difficulties and narrow spaces. We're trying to, uh, to remove ourselves from those places and to broaden ourselves on only by Merchavya, and that the Hallel contains a story of the person's search for the others who are telling their stories, and this person wants to join with them and tell the personal story of this one on the journey, and that in Psalm 118, unlike Psalm 116, in 116, the Psalmist says, I will 
how can I repay God? I will go to the public place, and the public place is Bechatzrot Beit Hashem, in the courtyards of God, Betochechi Yerushalayim, in the midst of Yerushalayim, which is the temple, the Mikdash. I'll go to the, to the temple. But in Psalm 118, the place is not defined. The place is called the, the Tents of the Righteous. But the Tents of the Righteous can be in many places. And um, who knows where the righteous people are? Here in New York City, there are a lot of righteous people working in testing centers and hospitals. Very simple people. They're the righteous people of our time. The medical workers, together with many others. So we never know where the righteous people are to be found. It requires a search. And that's the search over here. This person here is in the tents of the righteous, Yimin Hashem Romeima. And that Yimin Hashem Romeima plays off the Shiratayam, Zeili Vianveu. I will find a, a space, a house, and then I will exalt, raise up God. So there's a kind of praise that can only happen when there are others around. And the hollow is one of those uh, praises. Of course, you can say hollow privately, but there's something about saying hollow publicly and sort of responding. It's about hearing the other and responding and having the opportunity to have my own voice heard. So that was the point of yesterday's shear. I think the powerful point is that the halal contains a story. And the stories are always much more powerful than just, uh, you know, just reading a text uh, or, or a set of laws and rules, which may be very important, but fundamentally what grabs us, I think, for the most part of our stories, personal stories. That was yesterday. Um, I wanted today to continue with this idea of the exodus from Egypt and to look at it or to reflect upon the fact that within the Seder itself, within the Haggadah, and more generally within our Tanakh, the story of the, of the exodus from Egypt, Yitziat Mitzrayim, comes in many places. And it doesn't begin with the story of Israel leaving Egypt. But actually, in the book of Breshit, there are at least three stories which are all about leaving Mitzrayim, entering into Egypt on one hand and leaving Mitzrayim on the other. Uh, two of those three stories are not actually about Egypt as a geographical location. Egypt in the Chumash is, the, is a place, but it also is a, it's a, it's a concept. And leaving Mitzrayim is, is, is an event, but, but leaving out the historicity of it, which to my way of thinking is very secondary. The important point about Yitziat Mitzrayim is what it, is what it means, it's what it represents. And the first instance that we have in the Torah of somebody leaving Egypt behind, entering into Mitzrayim and leaving Mitzrayim, and this person is referenced in the, uh, in the Haggadah. The Haggadah in the Magid says, Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu, blessed is God, whom the Haggadah calls HaMakom, the place. Baruch Shomer Haftachato Yisrael Baruch Hu, blessed is the God who kept God's promise. How did God keep God's promise? Shakadosh Baruch Hu Chishevet HaKetz, God reckoned the time. God computed the time. Avinu Bibrit Ben Habitarim. 
to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham in the covenant of the pieces. That's chapter 15 of Breshit. And that's the promise that God made that Abraham will have a, 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 a child, an heir. And that child will, and his future generations will possess the this, this sacred land. That's the promise that God made. And Avram asked the question, as we know, what does it take? What's the price we have to pay? Because the covenant is a two-sided commitment. What kind of commitments must we undertake? And God responded that in, in return for receiving this sacred space, there's the commitment of the willingness to, uh, to be a stranger, to be enslaved, Avadum, an Ebed, slave, and be Inuotam and to suffer Inui, affliction, uh, personal harm. So that's the price. That's a very heavy price. And that's the covenant that Avram entered into. So the Haggadah references this promise. But the story of Avram does not begin in chapter 15 of Breshit. We encounter Avram at the very end of chapter 11 told about his, his lineage. And in chapter 12, we're told, Lechucha, that Avram was told to leave his home, he's from the north, and to leave his home, to leave Haran, and to uh, travel to the place, says God, that I will show you. That place is the land of Canaan, and Avram travels, takes his wife with him, Sarai, takes his nephew Lot, his possessions, his entourage, and he sets out and he comes into the land. That's the beginning of chapter 12. And then the Torah said, in chapter 12 of Breshit, Vahira of Baaretz, there was a famine in the land. Vayered Avram Mitzrayim of Agursham, and Abraham, there is Avram still, he went down to Egypt to dwell the Lagur, to be a Ger, a temporary resident. Ki of Baaretz, for the famine was heavy in the land. So here we have the first story of somebody going down to going down to Mitzrayim. He goes because there's a famine, which is why the people, children of Israel go down later. In the time of Yaakov, the story of Joseph, the brothers and Jacob go down because there's a famine. But already in chapter 12, we have a similar story. So Avram sets out to go down to Mitzrayim. He wasn't, I would add, and the Ramban makes this point, he wasn't actually given permission to go. He decides unilaterally to go there. He was told to go to the land that I will show you, says God. The land is the land of Canaan. But for whatever reason, Avram is traveling south in a southerly direction. There's a famine, bad famine. So he determines to go to Mitzrayim. Before he gets there, though, he turns to his wife, Sarai. He says, I have come to know that you're a beautiful woman. In Vayok, he wrote Tachamitzrim. If the Egyptians see you, Fiyamru Ishtozot, they'll say this is his wife. Vahagu Oti, Fiyotachi Chayu, they will kill me. Fiyotachi Chayu, they will keep you alive. Yichayu, they'll keep you alive. Therefore, says Avram, Imrina Achotiyat, say please, you are my sister. Uman Yitavli Baburech, that it go well for me, it be good for me. And I live on account of you. That was Avram's request. What exactly he had in mind is a good question. Say you're my sister. How will that help? 
Some interpreters think it means that the brother in the book of Breshit sometimes acts as the um, shadchan, as it were, for the sister. So they'll be negotiating with me and maybe they'll give me a lot of gifts because they want to win my favor. And then, you know, we'll catch the midnight train out of Egypt and we'll escape. That's what Rabbeinu, that's what the Ram thinks, Rabbeinu Nisim, and others follow along that path. So he doesn't want it to be taken, but he figures this is a way that you won't be taken. But he added in the very beginning, that it go well for me. Could be interpreted, go well for me that they're not going to kill me. Or could be interpreted, go well for me that will have some kind of material benefit. In any event, the Torah says that when they got down to Egypt, that Pharaoh's officers saw her. They saw she was very beautiful. When she was taken to Pharaoh's court, she's taken to Pharaoh. And whatever you thought about negotiating with, with Mitzrayim, you can maybe negotiate with the Egyptians. But with Pharaoh, you can't negotiate. So Sarah was taken by Pharaoh. And then the Torah says that God punished Pharaoh. This is all in chapter 12. God brought plagues upon Pharaoh and his house. On account of Sarah, Avram's wife. Okay. We have plagues. The plagues brought upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls in Avram and says, what have you done? You said she's my sister. She's actually your wife. And Avram is deported, thrown out of the land, deported from the land together with his entourage and together with his wife and together with all the possessions he was given. Because the Torah says, after she was taken, and I didn't mention this verse earlier, important verse, Uli Avram heitiv babura. But for Avram, it was good. What do you mean it was good? And the Torah says it was good that he had a lot of goods. He was given all kinds of possessions. This is found in chapter 12, in verse number, uh, verse number 16. He acquired, he was given many gifts. He was given sheep, oxen, asses, male and female slaves, and camels. Many gifts. Later we're told he has gold and silver as well. So this is Avram going down to Egypt, and the story of Avram in the land of Egypt as many commentators have noted, including the Ramban, bears a striking parallel to Israel and Egypt later on. They go down in both cases on account of a famine. There's some abuse that takes place. In the case of Avram, it's about his wife being taken, who knows how long. God intervenes and brings plagues, both in the story of Mitzrayim, Israel and Egypt, the Exodus story. Here there are also plagues. In both cases, the person or persons are forcibly deported. They're thrown out. B'nai Yisrael and Mitzrayim were thrown out. The Egyptians throw them out. Could not tarry. They said, we're all going to die if Israel is here. And of course, in chapter 12, Avram is forcibly deported. And in each case, they leave with a lot of wealth, with a lot of possessions. So story number one in Genesis chapter 12 anticipates story number two. So we have an example of Yitziat Mitzrayim, before the Exodus, way before. Abraham goes down to Mitzrayim. Abraham leaves Mitzrayim with a lot of wealth, etc. 
What, what can we learn from the Abraham story about this exodus from Egypt? And it strikes me that one of the questions that has bothered, perplexed and bothered the many commentators, especially those who think that our heroes, and Abraham is certainly one of our heroes, never do anything wrong. Uh, it bothered this, this kind of behavior bothered, bothers, I think it bothers every reader of the Torah. He puts his wife in terrible danger. And the Ramban adds, and not only that, who told him to go there in the first place? Maybe he didn't even have permission to go because he was told to go to the land that I will show you. So the Ramban famously says, our father Abraham sinned in both respects. He made a mistake, it's a sin. But the sin is actually an interesting sin. And what I wanted to, uh, to share with you, an observation, that in reading the story over here, because the Torah, as we know, rarely says so-and-so did the wrong thing. When it comes to the main characters of the, of the Chumash, it's very unusual for the Torah to, to actually make a statement like they did the wrong thing. The Torah lets the stories speak for themselves, and the Torah, for the most part, lets the consequences speak for themselves. So, what do we make of Avram going down to Mitzrayim? And the truth of the matter is that there's a very important point about, about studying the Torah uh, here, about the way the Torah tells its story, because one story of the Torah bears relationship to other stories of the Torah. We saw, we've already seen how the story of the Exodus and Abraham's Exodus are similar in many respects. But actually, there's something else about this story that's very interesting. It has to do with Sarah. Because in the story, we're told that Sarah is seen by the Egyptians, by Yeruota, and she is taken. She's seen and she is taken. And the idea of seeing and taking that's with, that which you should not take is something that the student of the Torah has already encountered twice. In fact, it's the first sin of the Torah. The first sin of the Torah is that the woman who is approached by the Nachash, by the snake, she sees, she sees that the fruit is good and she takes it. She knows of the command not to take it. She wasn't commanded herself. But she knows, she tells the Nachash, we're not allowed to take that, uh, that, that fruit. God has said, do not take of that particular fruit, lest you die. And the snake says, you're not really going to die. That's not really God's motive, etc. And the woman suddenly sees that it's good. And she takes it. And then she shares it with her husband. So the first sin is seeing and taking that which is good, even though there's been a command not to take of it. It's off limits, it's forbidden, but the woman takes of it and shares with the husband, he also eats of it, so they're both guilty. That's one story. Then when we read further in the creation narratives of Breshit, we get to chapter six of Genesis. And chapter six begins, in those days, the human beings began to flourish across the earth and daughters were born. Then we have the strange verse, Literally, the sons of God, whatever that means. Powerful people, angels, fallen angels, sons of, who knows? Doesn't matter for our purposes now. But they're strong, they're powerful. 
they saw the daughters of the human, that they were tov, tovot, they good. By Yikhu, they took whatever they wanted, and God has a very negative response to that. So we have two stories in the Torah, chapter three, chapter six, seeing and taking, that which is forbidden, either explicitly forbidden, God said, don't take it, or forbidden because we should know better, the Bnei Elohim should know better, to take the other without consent is a grievous sin. And it's exactly this, it's a parallel crime and God's response in each of them is to limit the life of the human being. The human is mortal in the first story, the human's days are limited to 120 in the second story. And now we come to chapter 12. Abraham goes down to Egypt. And again, we have the seeing and the taking. We have the seeing and the taking. They saw Sarah, it says, Batukach, and she was taken. What's very interesting is that in the first two stories, there are three key words. There's the seeing, there's the taking, and there's the tov. What you take is good. The tov appears twice in the third story, but in a very interesting way. It doesn't appear in the sense that the Mitzrayim saw that she was good and took her. They saw that she was beautiful and took her. But the word tov appears twice. It appears in the verse that precedes the seeing and the taking, when Abraham says, that it go well for me. And it appears in the verse afterwards, and it was good for Abraham. He received many gifts when Sarah was taken. So it would appear, if you read story number three, in light of story one and two, that actually one can read story number three, the, the crime was committed by Mitzrayim, by Pharaoh and for Pharaoh's henchmen. But Abraham is not an innocent party in the story. Abraham is an accomplice to the crime. He didn't want it to be taken, of course not. But at the end of the day, he created an opportunity. He created a possibility that Sarah was taken. And as he says himself, say you are my sister, so I will benefit from it. Whatever that meant in the first instance, the benefit that does accrue to him is he's given many gifts. Now, the truth of the matter is that, what is, the, what is my point over here? My point is that leaving Egypt for the Chumash is not just leaving the geographic place of Mitzrayim, but Mitzrayim in all of these stories has a set of values. It is not value free. And the values of Mitzrayim throughout the Bible are very negative. It's a place of seeing and taking for starters. And when you participate in that in one form or another, that kind of culture rubs off on you and creates problems which you carry with you your entire life. In the case of Abraham going down to Egypt, he's given gifts. He's given gifts, and the gifts are essentially animals, three kinds of animals, but he's also given the gift of male and female slaves. He has female Egyptian slaves. One of those female Egyptian slaves plays a very prominent role in Abraham's life. Her name is Hagar, and she is the source of enormous friction 
between Abraham and Sarah because Sarah offers Hagar to Abraham as a wife in order that she will have a child and that Sarah will be the spiritual mother the, of this child that is born by her former slave, Hagar, Egyptian slave. But after Hagar becomes pregnant, the Torah says, her mistress, Sarah, became light in her eyes. She lost respect for her. She was cow. She was of, of, of no value, of light weight. And Sarah gets very, very angry in chapter 16 and turns to Abraham and says, what, what is this? The, the, the wicked deed that has been done, she says to Abraham in chapter 16, is Alecha. It's your fault. She doesn't primarily blame Hagar. She doesn't like Hagar either. But the blame is yours. I gave you my, my slave. And when she saw she became pregnant, for a cow neha, I became light in her eyes. Yishpot Hashem may God judge between me and you, Avraham. And the reader is struck by, by the statement of Sarah, for a cow neha, to focus on becoming light. Because in the story of chapter 12, when presumably Hagar is given to Abraham in the first place, Abraham went down to the land of Mitzrayim, ki hara'av ba'aretz, for the famine was heavy. And when Abraham leaves Egypt, the Torah says, v'avram kaved ma'od, chapter 13, verse number two, Abraham was heavy, was weighed down with cattle, with gold, and with silver. So essentially what has happened is that Abraham, who was told by God, you're going to build an empire. And the building of the empire requires heirs, because Abraham is 75 years old when we first meet him, but requires material resources as well. And Abraham, in a sense, I'm not saying this was initial intention, but he's traded in Sarah for the material resources. And he becomes conveyed, he becomes heavy in the sense of weighed down. You know, when you're traveling, they always say, don't travel too light, don't travel too heavy. You take what you need, don't take too much, don't take too little. He's weighed down. The gold and the silver, which we discover about in chapter 13, weigh you down. The animals don't weigh you down, they walk with you. The people walk with you. But the gold and the silver you have to bear. So Sarah says to Abraham in chapter 16, it's your fault. The injustice is your fault. You have parted with Mitzrayim. You left Egypt, geographically left Egypt, physically left Egypt. But Egypt is still with us. The behavior of Mitzrayim, which has to do with not respecting the other. That behavior is still with you. And the one who pays the price for that, says Sarah, is none other than myself. The commentaries may be divided about how to read Abraham's behavior in Egypt. But Sarah is very clear about it. And frankly, I'll go with Sarah in this case. She knows best. So this is the story of the Exodus over here. My point is that this story of Hagar and the place of Hagar in the family is the primary story that runs through the entire Abraham narrative until Abraham finally figures out how to deal with it. And he deals with it in very interesting ways at God's instruction. It's only the binding of Isaac, actually, that Abraham comes to recognize the fact that Sarah is a full partner in Abraham's destiny. 
up to that point, even in chapter 20, he insists on calling her my sister. Travels to the Philistines, this is my sister. My sister means you can love your sister. But in the book of Genesis, she doesn't share your destiny. So Yitzhak Mitzrayim for Abraham is not a, an event that takes place at a particular point in time. Yitzhak Mitzrayim is a process from the beginning of his life or his life in the narrative as we encounter him till the end, till the last time God speaks, till the Akedah, to figure out how does my family work? How does succession work? How does passing on the covenantal blessing work? And it's in Mitzrayim that there was a terrible mistake made in terms of the place of Sarah, the place of Hagar. And that's something he has to work out his entire life. So that's one example of Yitziat Mitzrayim that we encounter before the Exodus story. The Haggadah mentions Abraham, but I wouldn't say Abraham is central to the Haggadah. But what is central to the Haggadah, of course, and the Mishnah insists that this is the central text of the Passover Seder, what is central is the reading and study and Midrashic study of four verses from the book of Zvarim, from Deuteronomy, which begin with the, with the verse Aramio Vedavi, which means literally my father was a wandering Aramean. The Mishnah says to read those verses, Mishnah says to read the whole parsha. we read four verses. V'doresh kola parsha kula, and to engage in Midrash concerning this parsha. And in fact, in the Haggadah, and you know, I wrote a Haggadah a few years ago with Rachel first, it's called Tzayu Lamad, go forth and learn. And um, it's really Haggadah written to be read before the, before the Seder, to be studied. Tries to get to the core elements of the uh, of the seder and the, and the biblical text that sort of undergird the seder. So Seir Ramad, go and learn. Seir Ramad says that Goda, Mabikesh Lavana Arami Lasot Yaakov Avinu. Go and learn what Lavan the Aramean tried to do to our father Jacob. Sheparo lo Gazar el al Hazcharim. Pharaoh only decreed against the against the boys, the males. But Lavan would have destroyed everything. As it is written in the Torah, Arami Avi. So the Haggadah interprets midrashically that Arami Ovedavi does not mean my father was a wandering Aramean, but means Arami, the Aramean. Lavan was the Aramean. Jacob runs to the house of Lavan. The Aramean, Oved Ovi, tried to destroy, or perhaps would have destroyed, my father. So, Lavan, you begin on the night that we are recalling the Exodus and re experiencing the Exodus and saying each of us sees herself, himself in Egypt. The first drusha is Pharaoh, he's bad, but not as bad as Lavan. What a strange way to start. The evening's about the Exodus, and the first statement is, is somebody worse than Pharaoh? But but, but we're reading about Pharaoh. We're reading about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So what does the Haggadah have in mind, the drasha that we've been handed by the Haggadah, which is Seyu That's our obligation at the Seder, to study, study the story, to ask all our own questions, to engage in Midrash. Midrash is the vehicle of the Seder. 
And the reason, as an aside, that Midrash is the vehicle of the Seder is simply because what Midrash is about is asking questions from where we are, wherever we're sitting, our own experiences, the place that we find ourselves. We ask questions about a text that is thousands of years old, and we presume that this text can also provide the answers. We plumb the depths of the text, we ask questions from where we are, <clears throat> with the assumption that the answers can be found within the text. So what the Midrash really does is it connects us, where we are right now, to the ancient text. And what is more appropriate for the night of the Seder than connecting where we are to the ancient past? Because the whole obligation, as this Haggadah itself says, is to see ourselves as being in Egypt. So connecting ourselves to the text with the presumption that we can still learn from these texts. They're not old-fashioned. They still have what to teach us is the presumption of the Midrash. And the first Midrash that we've been, we're handed as a gift, that Lavan is worse than Pharaoh. What a strange Midrash for a night that we are re reminding ourselves of and trying to re-experience the Exodus. But I presume that the point of the Midrash is not to say Lavan is worse than Pharaoh. That's not the main point. The main point of the Midrash, that the, the Aramean would have destroyed or tried to destroy Jacob, who went down to Egypt, it's not a causal link. In the Chumash, it's not because Lavan tried, tried to harm Jacob, that Jacob goes to Egypt. Lavan tries to harm Jacob in chapters 29, 30, and 31 of Breshit. Jacob goes to Egypt in chapter 46. Jacob doesn't go from the house of Lavan to Egypt. Jacob goes home. Whole story of Joseph. Intervening stories. Dina, Yosef, he meets Esau, all the stories. It means something different. It means that the story of Jacob in the land of Lavan and the story of Israel and Egypt are essentially the same story. And in point of fact, it's so true. Because, and this is the point that I've spoken about many times, my wife, Deborah Oresteinitz, has written about this and spoken about it. And what's very striking is that the language of the, the story of Jacob in the house of Lavan and the story of Israel in Egypt is essentially the same language. And in particular, what's most striking is that in each of these two stories, the terms of the covenant appear. Because we remember the covenant that Abraham had asked God, through what will I know that I shall possess the land? What is the price we have to pay? What is, what is our commitment about? And God says to Abraham, the commitment is threefold. Understand that your descendants will be strangers, they'll be enslaved, and they'll be oppressed. Gerut Abdud Ve'inui. For 400 years, for a very long time. And later in that same section, after the third generation will go out with great wealth, and the fourth generation shall return to the land. So you understand that it's a process that takes time. And actually, the very important point about that covenantal promise and covenantal obligation you remember that in chapter 15, and this 
the Haggadah makes reference to this promise, the Brit and Habatarim is found in the Haggadah, in Magid. And you remember that God said to Abraham to take a set of animals. Three sets of animals. Take these three sets of animals and to cut them in half, cut them in pieces, to put them on either side. And then to take a fourth set, to take birds, but not to cut the birds. So the three animals, right, the heifer and the uh, goat and the ram, they're cut in half, they're cut in pieces. But the fourth set, you don't cut up the fourth set. The birds are not cut. Now, what is the significance of cutting up the first three sets and not cutting the fourth set? What is that actually about? And here, there's a point of great importance in terms of understanding the covenant. Because the covenant speaks of three generations and a fourth generation. Three generations of suffering. The fourth generation shall return to the land. And what the animals suggest is the following. The generations that suffer will never go to the land. They suffer, represented by the animals cut in pieces. They suffer the threefold suffering of Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. But the fourth generation, which comes to the land, you don't cut up the birds. The ones who possess never suffer, but the ones who suffer never possess. And the covenant consists of both, both the returnees, but also those who preceded them and who suffered. So the covenant is built upon two different experiences, two different sets of generations. And here the important point is that if you enter this covenant knowingly, you know what you're getting into. And let's say you're a third generation person. The third generation person in the book of Genesis, because God is speaking to Abraham, he's first generation. His son Isaac, second generation. His son Jacob, third generation. Jacob is a third generation Jew. And in point of fact, Jacob in the house of Lavan describes his own experience as Avdut, Inui, and Gerut. When Lavan overtakes him in chapter 31, chases after him, why did you steal away? Why did you steal my gods? And Jacob says, I had no choice. If I didn't steal away, we'd never be able to leave. As far as your gods, whoever took them should die. Search if you wish. And Laban searches Jacob's tents, tents of his wives, Jacob's tent, finds nothing. Rachel, in fact, has taken them. Jacob doesn't know that. And Jacob gets angry with Laban at the end of chapter 31. You've enslaved me, says Jacob. And not only that, et on yevi et kapai, God heard my inui. So two of the three covenantal terms appear in chapter 31. And in chapter 32, Jacob says, sends his messengers to Esau. Jacob returns to the land, he's left Lavan. And Jacob says, tell Esau, im Lavan garti. I, I was a gear in the house of Lavan. So we have all three terms. You have Avdut and Inui in chapter 31. You have Gerut in chapter 32. It means that Jacob understands his experience as, 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 as covenantal, not just as punishment, not just as unpleasant, not just as quid pro quo, 
what he did to his brother and his father, and he tricked them and all that. All that's true. And you can read the story of Jacob in the house of Laban as punishment, but it's not just punishment. It's covenantal opportunity. It's finding the woman who will share his destiny. In the case of Jacob, it's the women who will share his destiny. But it's also undergoing the experience of Gerut, Abdut, and Inun. That's in chapter 31, in chapter 30. But in the Chumash, actually, Jacob has, goes into exile a second time. The story of Jacob is not just going into exile once. Jacob goes into exile twice. The first time he goes into exile, which is to the house of Lavan, he goes up north to Aram, where he, he, he self-defines his own experience as Gerut, I was a stranger, in Lavan Garti. Thickerstick, he, he defines it that way after he leaves. He doesn't define it when he's there. When he talks to Lavan, he says, you enslaved me and you afflicted me. Abdut and Inui. But he doesn't mention being a stranger. He mentions being a stranger after he leaves. Because the perspective is often the perspective on what was is only possible when we're not there anymore. Looking back at something from a critical distance, we can evaluate it properly. So that's what Jacob says in chapter 32, not speaking to Lavan, speaking to his own messengers, tell Esav in Lavan Garti. So Jacob went into exile, ran away from home, ran away to escape his brother, ran away to find a wife. But Jacob goes into exile a second time in the book of Genesis in Breshit, and that's in chapter 46. He goes down in chapter 46, with all the wagons that Joseph and Pharaoh have sent. And he goes down to Egypt with the entire family to meet his, uh, his son, Joseph. Chapter 46. I'll read you chapter 46. If you have the uh, Chumash, Tanakh, you can read along, of course. In chapter 46, we're told, by Yisai Yisrael v'cholashelow, by Yavob Shaba, Jacob, traveled with all his possessions, he came to Eber Sheva, that's the city in the south. He brought sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. His father Isaac had never left the land. Now Jacob is going to leave the land, and Jacob brings sacrifices to his father Isaac. There's more to be said about that, but not for now. In any event, God appeared to Jacob in a vision of the night. Jacob, Jacob. I am present. Hineni is a key word. I'm here for you, whatever you say. I'm the God of your father. Don't be afraid from going down to Egypt. I'll make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I'll bring you up. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, which means presumably you will die in Egypt. You will die in Egypt, and your son Joseph will be there when you die. He will close your eyes. Jacob might have thought 
that he's going to visit his son Joseph. He smile, and uh, he'll go back home. But God is saying to Jacob, not so. You're going to go down there, but you're going to be there till your death. Yes, I will bring you up. And Jacob does return after death. He's the last Jew out of Egypt. But jo jo Jacob is going there for the long term. He's going to exile. And here there's a very important point, and the Haggadah is aware of this. The Haggadah is very aware of this. And what Jacob is doing, where does Jacob leave from? He goes to Beersheba, right? He goes to Beersheba. That's very significant. Because the first time Jacob went into exile, to the house of Laban, by Yetzei Yaakov mi Beersheba, by Yelech Harana. The first time he went to Lavan, the point of departure is Beersheba. The first time he left to go outside the land, he sees the angels going up and down. Malachi Elohim Olim Viyardim. And over here, also going up and going down. On I will go down with you, says God. On The first time he is frightened by Yaakov. Yaakov is afraid when he has the dream, he sees the angels going up and down. And here too, don't be afraid, says God, means he's frightened. The first time God speaks about the God of the God of your father Abraham and the, and the God of Isaac. Here it's I am the God of your father. He brings sacrifices to his the God of Isaac. In short, the two stories are parallel. And Jacob is afraid because Jacob understands that it's not for the short term. He knows what it means to be in exile because Jacob was once in exile. He went to the house of Lavan. He understands what the house of Lavan is about. He understands the culture of Lavan. By the way, what is the culture of the house of Lavan? In, the, in Mitzrayim, we talk about seeing and taking. What is the culture of the house of Lavan? Lavan is more dangerous than Pharaoh. And in a certain sense, Lavan is more dangerous than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a bad guy. Pharaoh sees and takes. Lavan represents himself as a very good guy. He's a very ethical person. He gives Jacob all kinds of speeches about ethics. Why did you run away? Why did you steal? But the, the core, the house of Lavan is very simple. The house of Lavan, the culture of Lavan is a place everything is for sale. Everything's for sale. Jacob goes there to find a wife to marry one of Lavan's daughters. Jacob is Lavan's nephew. It's his mother's brother. He stays there for a bit. And Lavan says, because you're my brother, you should work for nothing. What are your wages? Now, what Jacob probably should have said was, who talked about working? There's no intimation he's working. I didn't come to work. I came to find a wife. I'd like to marry one of your daughters. I'm not an employee. I'm a blood relative. I'm a nephew. That's not what Jacob said. Jacob fell into the trap. I'll work for seven years for Rachel. So Rachel becomes the payment. Well, business, you know. And um, reminds me of the old Jewish joke, you know, the... Uh, Teachers, public school, and there's a little, you know, 
pub, public schooling in the corner is a little Jewish boy with a yarmulke on his head. And the teacher comes in and says, class, third grade or something, class, who's the greatest person who ever lived? So one can say, George Washington. No, no, no. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. No, 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 no. There's a, a beautiful apple. It's a little Jewish boy in the back raising. Jesus Christ. That's correct. Uh, fine, gives the apple to the kid. Kid's walking out of the room and says, Jacob, I don't understand something. You gave the right answer. But I'm surprised a Jewish boy like you would say such a thing. Listen, he says, Moses is the greatest, but uh, business is business. And uh, business is business. That's, 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 that's what Lavan's about. Everything's for sale. It's all to say it. Our father sold us. He can get seven more years out of Jacob. So he, he, switches, the, he switches the women. And Jacob is susceptible to that because there's a lover in Jacob. He's the guy who swindled his own brother. He took advantage of a good, a good business opportunity. His brother's tired and weary from work. You want some food? Birthright. Okay, business opportunity. So Jacob is susceptible to that. And in fact, Jacob himself suffers because of it. Because meanwhile, his, his two wives are, one wife has no children, wants to have children, and she hears that the son of the other wife, Leah's son, Ruvain, has found mandrakes, they're a fertility pill. So she uh, goes to Leah and says, give me some of those mandrakes. Mandrakes? You, you, you already took my husband, she says. He loves you more than he loves me. You want to be the mother of his children also? That's okay. He can sleep with you tonight. So Leah goes out to the, Jacob come back at night from the field. He probably was tired like Asaph. And Leah says, come to me tonight. I've rented you out for the mandrakes. That's what this family has come to. They're renting him out. And Jacob says nothing. And the child that's born is Yisachar. The point is, that's the danger. The danger that Lovan's house is not value-free. Lovan has a set of values. Everybody's a commodity. Everything's for sale. And that's very dangerous. And Lovin presents himself as very ethical and very virtuous. How could you do this? How could you speak this way? How could you steal away? As far as, how can you switch the women? I worked seven years for Rachel. In our town, we don't do this thing. We don't switch the younger for the older. I'm, I'm a law-abiding citizen. Maybe where you come from, Jacob, the younger one tries to take what belongs to the older one. But not for here, what are you talking about? You can, and you can have the second wife, just work seven more years. That's the danger. So Yitziat Mitzrayim for Jacob has to be a transformation. And in point of fact, in the Chumash, Jacob doesn't enter the land, doesn't return as Jacob. If he stays Jacob, he never makes it back. Prior to crossing back, he transforms himself. He becomes a different person. Jacob becomes Israel. So it's the becoming a different person that allows you to lead. And the truth of the matter is, the same thing is true in the story of the Exodus. Israel is enslaved by Pharaoh, by Egypt, by the Egyptian people, and there's Avdut, and there's Gerut, and there's Inui in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The same. It's exactly the experience of Jacob in the house of Ravan. But Israel can't just simply leave. 
Israel has to undergo, or at least begin to undergo a transformation. And that transformation takes place in Mitzrayim over time. And the highlight, of course, the attempt to, the beginnings of nationhood, of becoming a community, a sense of being part of something bigger and part of something that is related to a set of values, which is the service of God, without which we can't leave. That, of course, is what we call the Pesach, the Paschal Sacrifice. That's the creation of the Bayit. That's where the Bayit comes in. A sense that we share a common set of values by which we live. And without that carbon Pesach, we can't leave. And without that revelation, we can't leave. So Yitziat Mitzrayim, in the book of Exodus, the holiday of Passover, you can't leave until you first bring the Pesach. And everything the Pesach represents, the sharing with the other, the service of God, the recognition that the ultimate source of values can't be the Pharaoh, can't be Mitzrayim. We work on God's, with God's set of values. God will instruct us, has begun to instruct us and continues to instruct us. And that's Yitziat Mitzrayim. And of course, in every exodus, in every story, there's, there are failures along the way. The golden calf is the great failure of the book of Exodus. And the golden calf is all about not leaving Egypt, spiritually, physically you left. But the golden calf is about not being able to spiritually leave Egypt. It's a bump in the road, a big bump in the road. We have to overcome it. We learn from the mistakes and we move forward and we get a second set of tablets and we build God's sacred space and we build the Mishkan, this communal space that we share with God. So both in the story of Abraham's leaving Mitzrayim, he has his challenges. And Jacob has his challenges. And the point I wanted to add about Jacob is that Yaakov is going down to Egypt with an awareness of what that means. He understands going to that. He was in the house of Lavan. He suffered in the house of Lavan. He understood that's not my place. And Jacob is going down to Mitzrayim with a full understanding. And it's very interesting. If you remember the, the, the Haggadah. So let me say something about the Haggadah here in relation to this point, and we'll conclude with this. Hopefully, the goal is to hopefully throw out some ideas, or you will think about this and take it in different directions, hopefully. So the way it works is this. The, the main text of the Seder is Arami Ovedavi. Arami Ovedavi Vayered Mitzrayma. The 21 drushes. 18 of the 18 or 19, I don't remember, 18 or 19 of the drashot say, as it is written elsewhere. They quote a different biblical verse to support, to confirm, or to interpret the first verse. The four verses from, from Dvarim, from Deuteronomy, the pilgrim's prayer, Mikrabi Kurim, are explicated by biblical verses. But in two or three places, there's a statement with no supporting verse. And one place that's interesting is the first starts by saying, go and learn what love on the Aramean did to, uh, to our father Jacob. Worse than Pharaoh. As it is written, Aramio Vedavi. My father was a wandering Aramean, which the Medrash means the Aramean tried to destroy my father. Vayered Mitzrayma. He went down to Egypt. What does the Haggadah comment on those two words? He went down to Egypt. Vayered Mitzrayma. 
Anus al pihadibur. Compelled al pihadibur. By the, compelled by the word. What does the Haggadah have in mind when it says compelled by the word? So let me make a suggestion what al pihadibur means. Anus al pihadibur. If you see a Haggadah, you'll see that's what it says. He went down to Egypt compelled by the word. And I believe what the Medrash has in mind is the following. The Gemara says there are 613 commandments. 611 were uh, taught, taught by Moses. Two of them, the, the people heard them from God's mouth. They're talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin with the word Anochi. Anochi Hashem I'm, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. Anochi. When you look at God's speech to Jacob in chapter 46, when Jacob is going down to Egypt, and God says to Jacob, Anochi Eloheovicha, Anochi, I am the God of your father. Anochi Eredim I will go down with you. Anochi Achogamolo, I will bring you back. Anus apiadibur means apiadibur, by divine fiat, that Jacob is accepting what God is saying directly to Jacob, apiadibur. He doesn't want to go to Mitzrayim. He's afraid to go to Mitzrayim because he understands fully what it is. He understands exactly what it is. That's how it starts. Arami Love on the Aramean was worse than Pharaoh. When you say A is worse than B, you're saying essentially there's something similar, otherwise you can't say worse. They're similar. The experience in Egypt, the experience in the house of Laban, actually pretty much identical. Very similar. So when Jacob goes down to Mitzrayim, he goes down understanding what it means to be covenantal. What it means to be covenantal in the book of Genesis, and Jacob is the third generation. I'm going down to Mitzrayim. I know I'm going to die in Egypt. I will never see the redemption. But I believe that what I do matters in the sense that I pave the way for others to be redeemed. The third generation, and Jacob fully understands it because he experienced it. I make possible the fourth generation which will come back to the land. The fourth generation shall return to the land is made possible by those who come before the third, fourth generation. In the case of Breshit, the hero is Jacob. Here was Israel. Jacob, who is Israel, who accepts the suffering, who's willing to pay that terrible price, which he does. And he says it himself when Pharaoh asked him in the book of Genesis, how old are you? Remember Pharaoh asked Jacob how old he is? It's not a very polite question to ask, but Pharaoh asked the question, how old are you? Says Jacob, not as old as you think. I've had a terrible life. My life was short and very bad. I've suffered terribly in my life. So the Ramban says, I look older than I am, he says, because I've seen so many things. Think about Jacob's life, his family, the death of his beloved Rachel, the exile for most of his life of his beloved Joseph, the fighting in the family, story of Dina ending up in Egypt, working for Lavan, being ripped off by his father-in-law, being cheated, having to run away. Look at this man's life, disaster. 
He says it himself. It's a price he's willing to pay. It's the very deep lesson for us in the book of Preshi. So this is Yitziat Mitzrayim. There is an exodus from Egypt in Genesis. Jacob, Abraham, there's even a third story I can't get into now. But those stories suffice for now. There was an exodus before Israel was in Egypt. And those stories have to be read in conjunction with the exodus from Egypt. One story informs the other. That's what the Midrash is all about, actually. How these different texts speak to each other and how they uh, inform each other. I just would conclude, and then if anybody has some comments, I'll be happy to uh, hear them. You know, we're living now in a very difficult time for, for all of us and for the world, a difficult time. And it's precisely in these moments that we reflect upon you know, what is essential and what is secondary, where our priorities lie. So the priorities always have to lie, obviously, in that tradition with helping people that are in trouble and fighting the ravage of illness, disease, that takes precedence. The health of the community always comes first. There are all kinds of other issues that we face in conjunction with this particular disease, all kinds of economic issues which are real and very serious, um, which have to be dealt with. There are problems of people being alone. I'm thinking about Pesach now. My own family, we went away one time for Pesach and that was it. We never went away again. Pesach's always at home. But for many people, that's not the case for all kinds of reasons. They travel on Pesach. There are many people probably never had a Seder in their own home. They travel every year. The community empties out, travels wherever. And suddenly, they're on their own and no one can help them. In the sense, nobody can come to their Seder because people are confined, especially elderly people are confined. So I'm sure we're all thinking about individually and as a community, how to reach out to such people. So we are, you know, confronted with this set of problems. And what I'm suggesting is that we have to think about where the most serious problems are and what is secondary and what is tertiary. And that's very important. In the case of Abraham, in the case of Yaakov in the house of Lavan, they're beset by all kinds of issues. At, at the core issue is actually, you can lose your, if you stay in Mitzrayim too long, if you stay in the house of Lavan too long, you can lose your basic humanity. And we, and we certainly, and that's the struggle they face, somehow to, to retain the right values and not to forget where we're coming from and whom we aspire to be. Anyway, thank you again for joining me. If someone wants to make a comment, no one said anything. Uh, someone wants to comment or wants to add something, now is the time before we have to uh, leave the meeting. Dr. Silver? Yes. Um, I found it fascinating earlier in the conversation about Batekal, and I never really thought about it this way. And uh, Avraham, Avraham thought that he was uh, heavy with everything, and the opposite of Kal of light is also kaved, but it's also the word we use for kavod. And uh, I'm just thinking out loud that that heaviness that he felt was perhaps, um, I don't want to say misguided, but it was a sense of kavod that did not, ex that ended up turning into the lack of kavod 
for Sarah in some way. And that part of the task that we seem to have now, uh, which you were referring to in terms of extending ourselves is also to be mechabed de tabriot around us in every way. And, and the, the other thing I was thinking uh, in terms of how we had to come out a new transformed out of Mitzrayim is that that seems to be what's going on in our entire world right now. And that whenever things come out on the other end, we, we will not be the same nation uh, as we had formulated ourselves, even, and that there's going to be a, a whole new paradigm uh, for how we're supposed to be transformed through this. I, I would add to that, I think, I, I think very well said, I think that, I think that the Seder is a uh, very good example of this, that, you know, we, 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 we recall at the Seder, the, the moment when we became a people. It, Israel is born in the land of Egypt. Israel is born through the Paschal sacrifice. The Seder is our key ritual. And the Haggadah tells the story that these five rabbis, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yeshua, they were up all night studying about the Exodus until their pupils came and said, it's time to recite the morning Shema. And what I've often commented on that statement is that the Shema contains within it the last verse of the Shema, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. That in our lives, there are hopefully moments of, of great understanding, of great awareness, of great religious awakening, very powerful moments. But there aren't that many moments. I can speak for myself. I can think of a few. And they're not what you would expect. They're not, you know, something happened on Yom Kippur or something like that. It's small things. It's interactions with people that are very powerful. And I think the key, and part of what halacha is actually about, is keeping those moments alive. So once a year we are staying up all night perhaps and thinking about the exodus and transformation and becoming a people, then you go back to the real world. And the trick is not to lose them. And the trick is after we've had some powerful experience to figure out ways to keep those moments alive. In the case of the Haggadah, it's saying the Shema. You stayed up all night telling the story and studying the story. Don't forget to say the Shema in the morning. I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. So the keeping those great moments alive is a great, is a, an important challenge that we have. Let's get through this, hopefully. Let's learn a lot from it. Let's minimize the damage and um, move forward. But then the important thing is not to forget. As human beings, we often forget. Uh, halacha is one way to keep things alive. That's one of its intentions, I believe. Keep those great moments alive. And we live off those moments. And we always go back to those moments. As we say in the Seder, in every generation, we see ourselves personally as leaving Mitzrayim. Well, thank, thank you very much. Nice to join with you. Chag Sameach.